Well, good morning and a happy Resurrection Sunday to you all. As we turn to our time in God's Word this morning, we aim to fix our minds on the glories of Christ's resurrection and all the implications it has for our lives. We try and recall the life-giving death and resurrection of Jesus every Sunday here at Bringing Bible Church. So in one sense, it's as business as usual. But another, it's good for us to consider Christ's resurrection head-on this morning because it means so much to our Christian lives. And one of the biggest impacts the resurrection has on us is hope. Nothing gives believers so much hope as Christ's resurrection. This is why if the resurrection falls, we are hopeless. But as Christ did indeed rise from the grave, we who follow him are filled with nothing but hope, no matter how dark the world gets. And that is a message Christians need to be reminded of more and more these days, For I see and hear more Christians acting as if they have little to no hope. And the reason for that would probably be the dark times we find ourselves living in. It seems that many across the broad Christian landscape are living with a sense of dread. There is a steady state of anxiety as if our society or our place, our comfortable place in society might end at at any moment. As believers, we're called to live by faith and not fear, but how do you do that when things seem so fearful? You all know, just a couple weeks ago, we witnessed another school shooting. This time was a little different as the perpetrator was a woman identifying as a trans man, and she purposely targeted a Christian school, killing six, including three children. Globally, this is nothing new. Each year, for example, hundreds of Christians are targeted and killed in Nigeria, still, It's just that we're getting our first taste of such things here in America. What makes it extra troubling, though, is that the government and the media show more sympathy to the trans shooter than to the victim. And I bet you haven't once heard this labeled as a hate crime. In the background of this shooting is the LGBT sexual ethic, which has turned into a fiercely legalistic religion. And some now seem like they're ready to wage their own jihad. But as we watch our society sink further into further decay, denying God, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, the result is a deeper depravity. This is just the spirit of the age. It's embraced by the majority. It's embedded now in all of our institutions. Now, thankfully, not everyone has embraced such madness, but that still doesn't mean Christ's righteousness is found across the land. I mean, this spirit of the age is found everywhere on the right and on the left. And how much greed, materialism, and self-interest are just baked into our culture, leading to a different set of evils where profits are put over people. This is just the tip of the iceberg of today's troubles. We're catching the first glimpse of like truly terrifying AI. It's like every old dystopian novel is becoming true all at once. And then now we're, I guess we're back on the brink of nuclear war. Russia's up to its old ways. Abroad, it seems the world is at war. At home... It seems like civil war is looming, right? How can our nations divide and peacefully? We could keep going. What do we make of this? And maybe you are here this morning as one who's been living under a cloud of dread because of all these troubles. How are we to understand this moment in history? In one sense, you really could argue things are worse today than they have ever been simply because we've never seen Pandora's box of depravity open so wide on a global scale. There have always been wicked nations celebrating gross immorality, but never globally like this. Rulers of pretty much every Western nation have completely bowed down to this new sexual ethic that's completely contrary to God's will. 
The only exceptions are a few Eastern and Arab nations, but they are by no means righteous. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And woe indeed when like, the whole world seems to be moving this direction. So in one sense, yes, you could argue that this day is one of, of peak evil. But in another sense, it's not like there has been an age that wasn't characterized by evil. I could pull headlines from any era of human history and find very dark times somewhere around the globe. I mean, if you think it's bad now, how quick we are to forget the 20th century, which saw more human bloodshed than all human history combined. And then what? You think the 19th century saw righteousness across across the globe? I mean, you can pick any age and you'll be sure to find dark times. There are some areas of light, some bright spots in a dark landscape, and we praise the Lord for that. seems like what, that is what America has been, which has enabled many other lights to go out into the world and reach the nations, but areas of light come and go. The light itself is never extinguished, but it shouldn't really surprise us if America, if the light here dims, the witness for Christ here dims, and we become like most of the other nations. And do you know why this is? It is because overall, we're living in a present evil age. And you know, that's how scripture defines our time. This comes from Galatians 1.4. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, He gave himself for our sins so that he might deliver us from what? It says, from this present evil age. That's what we're living in, this present evil age. We're not without hope. I mean, the verse mentions that's why Jesus came. He died to rescue us from this present evil age. This is something I want to help you think through this morning. We need to consider the times, discern how to respond, all based on what God has said in his word. How are we to make sense of the world we see around us? Does scripture account for that? Are we really living in a present evil age? If so... How long does it last? Until then, how are we to live? And then what does Christ's death and resurrection have to do with it? These are some important questions I want us to to ponder from the scriptures this morning. Normally going through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll set that aside for this morning. This won't be your typical verse-by-verse sermon, but instead I just want to stretch out the fabric of scripture this morning and, and then stitch together a biblical worldview for living in dark times. To do this, we're going to go on a bit of a journey, you might say a broad survey of the scriptures. I'm talking about 55 verse references. This is ambitious, but you you put them all together and you take away six biblical assertions that help you understand and live in a present evil age. That's what we're going to try and come away with, six biblical assertions to help you understand and live in a present evil age. And so we'll start with this, the first. History is divided into two ages, this age and the age to come. I don't have any catchy alliteration for you this morning. I think note takers are going to have a real hard time. But history is divided into two ages, this age and the age to come. So start, you can turn to Luke chapter 20 if you aim to follow along, Luke 20. Now as you're turning, I'll introduce this subject. Scripture frequently divides history into two ages, this one and that one, this one and the one to come. This very often comes from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. This was just his favorite way of differentiating how things are now from how they will be after he returns. 
I'll give you a few quick examples of this two-age usage. Matthew 12, 32, Jesus says, Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Mark 10, 30, Jesus says, Disciples who follow him will receive much in the present age, and in the age to come, eternal life. Ephesians 1, 21, Christ is exalted above all, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And on and on it goes. What does this mean? How is this word age being used? You have behind it the Greek word ion. This can sometimes refer to a very long period of time, but ion is also used as a way to characterize people of a given time. So even in English, we say a bronze age, an iron age. It's a way of characterizing the advancement of people at that time. Now, in this usage, the word ion becomes very similar to the Greek word for world, cosmos. In fact, we'll find many verses later on which translate this word ion into world in English. So you could say history is this age, the age to come. This world, the world to come. And overall, ion is referring to a particular stage or period of history with unique characteristics. An age is a special stretch of time with special defining marks. And this is why scripture speaks of, well, this age and then the age to come. The whole point is there are enough significant differences between the character of these two time periods that it merits calling them two distinct ages. And the age to come is markedly different from this present age. Luke 20, you find a classic statement to this effect from Jesus himself. We encounter the Sadducees, a sect of the Jews, who denied a future resurrection. And they're trying to trap Jesus in a theological twister. They come up to him with this, what if? And what would happen if there was a woman who had been married seven times, being widowed seven times? So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Look how he responds, Luke 20, verses 34 through 36. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they're like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. You can see the contrast here for yourself. To Jesus, there are two ages. Verse 34, this age. Verse 35, that age. There are two groups. Verse 34, the sons of this age. Verses 35 and 36, those considered worthy to attain the next age, they're called sons of God and sons of the resurrection. You can also see the character of these two ages. This age is marked by death. The sons of the age all die. The next age is marked by death. Life, verse 36, adds they can't even die anymore because they're resurrected. They're like the angels. So this first assertion, it's simple enough, but it's, it's a necessary starting point on this journey that especially when you're asking Jesus himself, history is divided into two ages, this age and the age to come. Now this, this second assertion builds on this. Number two, the present age is evil. Present age is evil. Remember, an age is defined as a particular period of history with unique characteristics. And when it comes to this present age, Scripture consistently describes this age overall as being evil. 
And some centuries have been better, some worse, but ever since the fall, you could not characterize any era of human history as being truly righteous in God's eyes, could you? No, rather, in the Lord's eyes, the dominant character of human history since the fall has been evil. Let's, let's prove this to you from the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 2, you can turn there. We'll get there in a second, 1 Corinthians 2. And while you're turning, I'll mention again Galatians 1.4. Christ came to rescue us from what? He says this present evil age. Evil, he literally uses the word poneros, evil. Also, Ephesians 2 is huge. It recalls a time when we were dead in our sins. And then verse 2 says, in which you formerly walked according to what? The course of this world. Literally, the age of this world, the ion of this world. And according to Paul, what characterizes the age of this world? Sin. He says this is a sinful age. That's why he says in Ephesians 5.16, be careful how you walk because the days are evil. Over in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul grieves over his former partner, Demas. He says he has deserted him. Why did he desert him? Paul says because he has loved this present world. Literally, I own age. He loved the present age. And that's not a good thing, that this present age is not lovable to the righteous. Demas proved to be like the seed sown among the thorns in Matthew 13, 22. It says that the worries of the world, or literally, I own, the worries of the age and the deceitfulness of riches choked out the word. This understanding really Shed some light on 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. That is the Greek word cosmos for world. But when you understand how cosmos and ion are closely associated, it, it falls right into place. Like, Don't love this age. What is this age all about? This is verse 16. It's, it's the spirit of the age. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. This is what is in the world, and this is what characterizes this present age. Every era since Satan tempted Eve in the garden with these same three lusts has been marked by the spirit of the age. Now, if you're in 1 Corinthians 2, just what a contrast between this age and the age to come, specifically relating to God's wisdom. He says in verse 6, we speak wisdom, that wisdom, he says, is not of this age age I own, nor, nor the rulers of this age. Now, verse 7, we have God's wisdom. He says, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. In verse 8, this wisdom is revealed in this, this gospel. He says, which none of the rulers of this age have understood. What's he saying? He's saying this age is characterized by natural men who do not understand the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to them. So the sage is not just evil, it's dumb, it's blind. It lacks spiritual understanding. The silver lining is like this age will end. The rulers of the age, they're passing away. That's good news. But until then, we are living in a present blind evil age. So you just synthesize already what we've learned about this present age. It is explicitly called evil. More specifically, its character is one of sin. This is a sinful age dominated by the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked. 
The lusts of the flesh are celebrated and abound. Meanwhile, God's truth is rejected and ridiculed. Welcome to the present age. Now, we need to add one more point here before moving on. Will things change? Are we given any expectation things will change for the better before the next age? The answer to that is no. It's the whole point. That's the difference between this age and the age to come. That age, its defining characteristic is righteousness. We're never led to believe that this present age will be sanctified, that its fundamental nature will change from evil to good. And the church can and, and will impact this age, but this age doesn't get saved. It gets conquered and replaced by the new one. And that age to come, its arrival is always associated with one thing in the scriptures, the second coming of Christ, which we will see shortly. For now, turn to Romans 12, back a few pages if you're in 1 Corinthians, Romans 12. We've already seen a long list of verses characterizing this age as evil. Meanwhile, there, there are no verses to the contrary. There's no list showing that this age gets reformed, whereby it's no longer a sinful evil age that suppresses the truth. For example, just consider this, Romans 12, verse 2, well known. It says, do not be conformed to this world. And guess what? You guessed it. I own. Do not be conformed to this age. It's a word for age. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So tell me, when in in this age are we led to expect that this verse no longer applies? Right now, it is wrong for us to be conformed to the age, right? Like, when does it become right for us to be conformed to the age? When is it a good thing for us to love the world and the things in the world? The clear, consistent testimony of Scripture is not until the next age. That doesn't happen in this age. This age, he says, it's not good. It's not acceptable. It's not perfect. This age does not conform to the will of God, which is why we must not conform to it. That's the whole point. When does that change? No statute of limitations is given in Romans 12.2. This is just the character of this age until the next one. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not suggesting that because of this, we expect the church to have little or no impact in this age. Not all. We as a church are to be faithful, to go out into all the nations, preach the gospel, make disciples. The Lord is saving a remnant. He will build his church. And by his power, the church's success is guaranteed. For our part, we are simply to be faithful instruments in the Redeemer's hand, living as lights in a present evil age. We're meant to be encouraged by many of Christ's parables in Matthew 13. The parables of the mustard seed and the leaven show how during this present age, the church will grow and expand. Its influence will spread across the world. And we're seeing that even now. That the gospel is getting into the dark corners of unreached nations. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And our job is to just take that gospel to the ends of the earth while trusting the Lord to call his remnant. But don't forget one thing. The parable before that is the parable of the wheat and the tares, and it tells us what else to expect in this age. It tells us that the Son of Man will 
will sow plenty of wheat that many will come to salvation in this age. Amen. But as the wheat spreads, so do the tares. And they're identified there as the sons of the devil. They multiply vastly too in this age. And yet the Lord says it is his will to do what? He says, allow them both to grow together. For how long? Until the harvest. When's the harvest? Jesus says, Matthew 13, 39, he says, at the end of the age. It's when the Son of Man comes. We as a church must let the light shine brightly in the darkness, and we expect it to impact the world. It's where God has put his power in the gospel. It opens blind's eyes. But look, as the light grows, darkness grows too. The fundamental nature of this present age as evil does not change until the coming of the Son of Man. Going back to the 20th century, did you know it's estimated 45 million Christians were martyred? Not talking natural causes, 45 million Christians were martyred globally in the 20th century, more than all uh, than human history combined. That tells you two things. One is positive, that there existed at least 45 million Christians in the first place. That's amazing. That's a lot of wheat. I praise the Lord for that. But it also tells you something not so positive, that there were evidently a lot more tares, evil men who rose up and put to death 45 million Christians. It's like Jesus said in Mark 10.30. His disciples asked him what to expect in following him. He said, in the age to come, eternal life. In this age, expect many blessings, but he said, expect many persecutions. That's just the character of this age. The darkness hates the light, and so long as this world is in the domain of darkness, that's not going to change. Now, speaking of the domain of darkness, Scripture goes on to explain why this present age is so evil. This worldview, this biblical worldview we're forming, tells us that there's more going on than meets the eye. So a third assertion, the present age is evil because it is ruled by Satan. The present age is evil because it is ruled by Satan. You're not going to fully understand the present age without including what the Bible says about the God of this age. And that is the devil. If you think that, if you think that language is too strong, that's literally what the Bible says. Let me show you how Satan is described in relation to this age right now. We can invoke again Ephesians 2, verse 2. We already saw how this age, the age of this world, is marked by sin. But it goes on to reveal the one who sits behind the course of this world is who? He says, the prince of the power of the air, which is a Semitic idiom for the devil. He is the ruler, the prince, the magistrate who exercises his authority over this world. The same as John 14.30, where Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. No wonder 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And it doesn't get any stronger than 2 Corinthians 4.4, where Satan is referred to as the god of this world. Or literally, Ion. He's the god of this age. In fact, go ahead and turn again to 2 Corinthians, well, really, the first time, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at that verse later. 2 Corinthians 4. You might wonder, how can this be? Like, isn't, isn't God the God of this age? Isn't Jesus the ruler of this world? 
ultimately, yes, of course, Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord and all it, all it contains. Jesus is exalted above every power in every age. There's never been an age where he was not exalted above every power. But that does not mean the triune God is exercising his rule and authority in this age. I mean, clearly he's not. We still sin, right? Man is still allowed to sin and thereby subvert the revealed will of God. And so is the devil. God is sovereign over all of that. He's sovereign over the devil. The devil is still on God's leash. Just read Job 1 and 2. But per God's hidden will for his greater glory, he has sovereignly allowed Satan to usurp his rule over this earth. And after the fall, in a functional sense, dominion over the world was transferred or captured by Satan. He captured mankind and he holds them captive via sin and death. Listen to what Satan himself said when tempting Jesus. Luke chapter 4 verse 6 says, The devil said to him, speaking of the world, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now some might say Satan was bluffing when he said that. He didn't really have domain over the world. But this actually fits perfectly with the picture we get of him in this age. That he became the ruler of this world and the God of this age in a functional sense. All right then, so what does Satan do with his dominion? Scripture says that too. We learned in Ephesians 2 too, he's controlling the course of the world, the age of the world, the spirit of the age. It's ruled by the devil. It's the same spirit which now works in the sons of disobedience. And he's also blinding the minds of the unbelieving. If you're in 2 Corinthians, look at verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4, speaking of the devil. It says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That, that's a stunning verse of what the God of this age is still doing, explaining why they don't believe this gospel, which makes to you and me like so much sense. This is akin to the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, where Jesus reveals the devil is the one who comes and steals the seed of the word from the hearts of the unbelieving, that they might not understand it. And through such deception, Satan effectively holds captive mankind in slavery to sin. Just listen to how 2 Timothy 2.26 describes the lost. And Paul hopes, he's talking about the lost, he hopes, 2 Timothy 2.26, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Another stunning verse, you talk about free will, more like captive will. The, The lost are held captive to his will. They're not in their right mind because they're ensnared by the devil. Their thinking has been influenced by his spirit, the spirit of the age. This does not sound very good, but it lets you know that every world religion, false belief system, false ideology comes from the devil. It did not come from God, right? Don't be unaware of the schemes of the devil, which, which find new expression in every era, but it's the same old schemes. But do you really think the devil is no longer blinding the lost, holding captive the nations, 
and exercising his authority over the world through lies and deception. Where else are, are all the lies coming from that are dominating the spirit of the age right now? As for us, Ephesians 6 tells us we are given this full armor of God, Ephesians 6.13. Why? We're given it that we may resist in the evil day. When is the evil day? It's every day in this age. The good soldier keeps his armor on while the battle rages. And for us, that's this entire age. When are we led to believe that we no longer need this armor? We can safely shed the armor. Not till the next age. Let's just pause for a moment. Like, like what are we doing this morning? We're in the middle of this, this pretty involved Bible study. Why are we doing this? This is essential equipping. These are vital biblical truths that that build for you a consistent Christian worldview. And that is what helps you make sense of the world we see around us. So look, when you see a a trans shooter murder Christian children because Christians don't buy into the, the lie that you can choose genders, and then the world rallies behind the shooter, you don't have to wonder if that ideology is satanic. It's not a big question mark. The age is evil. The lost are held captive by him. As Christians, we say the Bible is God-breathed. You could just as well say the world right now is Satan-breathed. As the father of lies, he's ultimately behind every false thought, worldview, and ideology brought up against the glory of Christ. And through deception, he inspires the spirit of the age, which finds new expression in every age. How about lust of the flesh? You know, it said that one-fourth of all web searches today are for pornography. You don't think that has the devil's schemes written all over it? Or the lust of the eyes. Even Americans who don't buy into the sexual revolution can still be found worshiping idols of wood and metal and stone. Today we call them houses and cars. And then the pride of life. You can't make it through a grocery checkout without seeing a parade of celebrities our culture worships as gods among men. Again, we could go on, but the point is, Scripture equips us to understand the times in any era. And overall, this is a present evil age ruled by Satan. Not every century is as bad as it could be, just like not every sinner is as bad as he could be, but both can definitely be described as totally depraved. Now, I know so far this study has been pretty depressing. We've laid in heavily on what scripture tells us about the present age and it's not good but it's not also the end of the matter just as we often say our hope is not in this world our hope is not in this age it's time to turn the quarter and include the good news for as bad as all this sounds what breaks the power of satan over this world the answer is the coming of the christ as we can go to a fourth assertion Christ's first coming conquered the power of Satan. Christ's first coming conquered the power of Satan. Again, so far we've been heavy on everything wrong with the world, but it is not all bad. It is Easter, after all, whereby we joyously remember the plan God enacted to save this world. That plan centered on God the Son come down in human flesh to live among us, and that he did, living a perfect, sinless, spotless life. 
Yet he still died on the cross. And worse, he was executed on that cross as a criminal. That's something we recalled this past Friday, a day we call Good Friday. And to the world, darkened in understanding, that makes no sense. Why would we make a holiday around the death of our founder and call it good? To the world, that is just foolishness. But to us who are being saved in Christ, we see the wisdom of God and the power of God. What makes his death good has to do with what he was doing on that cross, namely paying for our sins. You can go back to that verse that started this all, Galatians 1.4, which says that Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. The word rescue is exiro, the same word the Septuagint uses for the exodus. It's a rescue mission. His coming was a rescue mission. Rescuing us from, from slavery to sin and Satan. Just like Colossians 1, 13 and 14 say, Christ, it says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. This rescue is not talking about a physical zip code. When the Lord saves us, we don't leave the planet. But we do transfer domains. We switch sides. The whole world is under the dominion of Satan, but, but not us anymore. We're freed, we're, we're plucked out, we're rescued, we're made sons of the kingdom. Satan holds all the world captive through the power of sin, which brings about an eternal death. But that's what Jesus came to defeat. Hebrews 2.14, an important verse. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise also partook of the same, so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. We've talked about Ephesians 2 long enough. Go ahead and turn there. Go to Ephesians 2. Let me, let me show you how Christ's death delivers us from this present evil age. In Christ, we have moved spiritual domains. We are now under Christ and his rule. That, that's where we live. That means the spirit of the age no longer dwells within us. He's given us his Holy Spirit. As Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, we are no longer spiritually dead. We're no longer living according to the course of this world. We're no longer under the rule of the prince of the power of the air. We're no longer by nature children of wrath. Instead, verse 4 because of God's great love and mercy, verse 5, God made us alive together with Christ. In verse 6, he raised us up with him and then seated us in the heavenly places. And one of the reasons we Christians on Easter celebrate the resurrection so much, it's not just because of his resurrection. It is, but it's because his resurrection is what leads to our resurrection. We don't have resurrection if he didn't rise. That's what we're hoping for. But in conquering the power of sin and Satan on the cross, that now in Christ we are spiritually resurrected from the dead, we're made alive, we're seated, we're given a new nature, and we have a bodily res resurrection to come. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say it was a pretty good Friday. I think it's why we call it a good Friday. It's why we celebrate Easter. And keep in mind, this is all to God's glory in every age, as verse 7 says, 
This all happened, verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And to clarify that the first coming of Christ did not end the dominion of Satan over this world, that this is still the domain of darkness. It's still, for now, an evil age. If Jesus wanted, during his first coming, after his death and resurrection, he, he could have executed Satan, thrown him right into the lake of fire right away. People are like, why didn't he do that? Why didn't he just like, put him down? But he didn't. He has plans. He will. He has plans for this world. He's working out his plan of salvation for all the nations. But for the time being, this is still a present evil age under Satan's rule. This explains, though, why Jesus himself taught us disciples to pray daily, deliver us from the evil one. This is why Jesus himself prayed for us, us future disciples, in John 17, 15. He said to his father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Why would he pray that? Because he knew after he died and rose and ascended, his disciples would be left in this dark, evil, fallen world. And he wanted them to be in this world. They need to be. He's got a purpose for them, but not of it. He needs them to live in this age, but not be captured by the spirit of the age. So he prays that they would be kept from Satan's power, and that we are as we walk by the spirit. Again, though, this first coming of Christ was a rescue mission whereby he began calling out of the world a people for himself. Right now, Jesus is populating his kingdom. He's sowing the good seed upon good soil through his witnesses until the great day of harvest. And that is where we come in because we are among those disciples whom the Lord Jesus has called. And so here we are. We've been made alive. Yet, left to live in a present evil age, How are we to do that? How does he expect us to do this, to endure, to live in this present evil age? What does he want us to do? And so fifth assertion comes in. Number five, kingdom citizens are to live as lights. Kingdom citizens are to live as lights. We've learned that in Christ, we are made new. Just like 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That verse is talking about us. We are are what's new. We've been made new. The world is not new yet. The age is not new yet. One day it, it will be. And Jesus calls that day, he calls it the regeneration in Matthew 19, 28. He looks forward to the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And he associates that future day with the age to come. But until then, how are we to live? That is a massive question to which we can only give the shortest of answers. And the short answer would be, we are to live as lights. Given the darkness of the age, the natural tendency of most is to retreat from the world. To seek safety, self-preservation, comfort. Just kind of flee to safety, form an enclave, start a monastery, run away. But that is not an option for us. Because this Lord has given us a mission to go out into the field. Harvest is plentiful. We have a great commission to go into all the nations to make disciples. This Lord has 
has made us, the church, the light of the world, Matthew 5.14. Light is made for darkness. That's the whole point. Light is made to go to darkness. And as such, we are to take the light of Christ and let it shine in the darkness that others might come to know him and be saved. This is just part of the duty and the joy, the privilege that comes with being called a son of light. That's what Jesus called us, Luke 16, 8. In contrast to the sons of this age, I own. He says, we now are the sons of light. And it's by our witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation, that the church is meant to impact this world. Now, there, there's so much more to say about how we as Christians are, are told and equipped to live in this present age, this dark, evil present age. What are we to do? So much so, in fact, that this will probably be next week's sermon. I figure this sermon is already overkill enough, and I'm going to kill you. So, But I think we need to just more fully flesh out how exactly we are expected to live in a present age, including being lights, but, but beyond being lights. What, what are we to do? We'll find out next time. For now, time eludes us, so we have to move on. But there's much God expects us to do in this age. Yet we know that at the end of the day, our ultimate hope is not in this age. The hope that sustains us is not found in this age. It's found in the next age, and that starts with the return of Christ. So number six, Christ's second coming is our ultimate hope. Christ's second coming is our ultimate hope. And this is a, the last stop for our worldview for living in the present age. This is just a huge, pervasive theme, especially in the New Testament, that the, not the only, but the ultimate hope for believers living in an evil age is the coming of Christ. Just, you see it all over the place. We've already actually seen so many verses to this effect, how we are waiting for the Lord of the harvest to come and end the age. We could go to Philippians 3.20. It says, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We go to 1 Corinthians 1.7, which says we are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is because of Colossians 3.4, which says that when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. That's Philippians 3.21. It means that his coming means our resurrection. We are made sons of the age to come, sons of the resurrection. And his coming is when we enter that age. So, like, yeah, that, of course that's going to be our ultimate hope. Do you have something better to hope in? And really, for Christians who are suffering in dark times, for believers in the New Testament and beyond who are made to bear the persecution of a present evil age, the return of Christ is, is always given as this huge theme for their hope to endure. Look up. Second, uh, Second Thessalonians believers are being greatly afflicted, made to suffer already for their faith. Yet Paul tells them to persevere. He tells them that God will repay the wicked and he will grant you relief. When? He says in verse 7. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. You'll be relieved then. Verse 10 says that's when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. Paul tells them this 
Not that they'll get instant relief. They might not. They might die. But he tells them to endure, to persevere, to cling to the faith. Despite their sufferings, the only way you can do that is if you have a steadfast hope. And the hope we, we see on every page is Christ is coming. He will make all things right. Jesus himself told us, John 16, 33, he said to his disciples, in the world, you will have tribulation. He told us what to expect in this age. You're going to have tribulation. Then he said, overall, hey, take courage. I have overcome the world. His return is the realization of that hope. And so why do you think like the earliest prayer of the church was Maranatha, which translated means come, Lord Jesus, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. It's literally how the Bible ends. Revelation 22, verse 20, it says, Come, Lord Jesus. His coming is our ultimate hope because that is when this evil age will end. That is when Satan's power and dominion over the world will end. That is when the sons of disobedience will end. That day is coming, which is why we must appeal to the lost. Some of you might be here this morning just attracted to a church on Easter. Maybe you feel the, the sense of dread because of the times we're living in and you're looking for hope. I'm glad you're here. That you might hear hope is found. It's, it's only in one place, though. It's in this crucified, risen, returning Savior. Revelation 22, verse 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I mean, life eternal, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, and a place in the age to come that they're offered to you freely, not because of what you have or can do, but because of what he did with his finished work on the cross. To receive it, you must go to him. Repent of your sins. Think of all the wrong you have done. You, I, once were these sons of disobedience, the wrong we have done before a righteous God. But you go to him poor in spirit, meek, empty-handed. He promises to turn none away who come before him with a repentant faith. Deny self, follow him, and believe on this Christ today. And just like the apostles preached from the very beginning, Acts 2.40, be saved from this perverse generation. 2,000 years later, we're still saying the same thing. Be saved from this perverse generation. To come to the end of our time this morning, what's our takeaway from all this? We've labored through dozens of scriptures, and you put them together and you form a biblical worldview. The benefit is that this worldview enables us to interpret the world around us, the world we see. So when you read the headlines of today or any age, you see the wicked prospering. You see depravity rising. You see institutions compromising. You see the righteous being persecuted. It shouldn't surprise you. And Satan, he's still at work. He's scheming. And he's very effective. He's very good at what he does. The lost are held captive. They're not in the right minds. I don't expect the lost to be rational. Sin is irrational. They're held captive by Satan to do his will. This can even affect good churches because the enemy is real good at sowing tares among the wheat. Good churches may likewise fall. In America, it's pretty obvious now persecution is rising. America is becoming more like post-Christian Europe. But that, that shouldn't surprise you either or, or trouble you. 
that God is still on the throne. He's still preserving his remnant, the church. He will always have his 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. This is, this is simply how he has operated throughout all human history, preserving his people, his remnant, his seed, and he will do until the end. If you've ever flown over the country at nighttime, you have a window seat, you look out the window, you look down, and all the land is dark. But you see a few lights, a few bright spots, and you know those are cities with their lights on. That's kind of like the landscape of the church in the world over all the centuries. It's nighttime, the land is dark, but there are bright spots. Overall, we are encouraged to know that the light never goes out. Christ will never let the light go out, and it will spread. It is powerful. But because the age is evil and the enemy is effective, some areas of light come and go. You know, in the first few centuries of the church, North Africa and the Middle East were the brightest spots of the church. And they went dark, and it went to Europe. Europe became the brightness of the gospel. Think of Calvin's Geneva or Spurgeon's London. The light found the new world came to the U.S., to Canada, At the same time, though, you look at most of those places today, and they're all extremely dark. Geneva, London, Canada. You you find some of the most wicked spiritual corruption on the planet. They've become Satan's strongholds. America may, may not be next, but this does not make us dejected. This does not make us fearful because the, the light never goes out. That's not possible. Right now, in fact, it's emerging in places like Africa and, of all places, China. You look out the window, it's still nighttime, but the light is there. It's still spreading. God's word never returns void. It always accomplishes his will. And that will is for him to redeem some from every tribe and tongue, people and nation. That's what he's going to do. We can trust him to do that. As for us, our hope should remain unaffected because it's tied to the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, and then ultimately tied to Christ who's returning to restore the world. And so this worldview then gives us perspective, and in in practice, it it casts out all fear, worry, and anxiety. There's no room left for dread and gloom, good times, bad times. It it doesn't really matter. Even if we're made to suffer, I mean, it's not like we suffer as those without hope. We're filled with all hope because of a risen Savior and joy, Because of Easter, his dominion over this world is guaranteed. There's nothing left for us to fear. For you then to experience this, you just need to grow in your faith in him. If you're you're living in that, that dread, that gloom, either you're ignorant or you have a little faith. Both can be solved by looking to Christ in his word, looking upon him in greater faith. That casts out all fear. You do that by setting your mind on things above. By keep seeking things above where Christ is. That's Colossians 3, 1 through 2. He came down to us to give us his peace, not later, now. And to give us his joy, not just later, but, but also now. We, we experience it now in him. I love Hebrews 6, 5, which says that we in the church, we are those who have tasted uh, the powers of the age to come. We have tasted the powers of the age to come. Right now, you know what that means? We have right now the forgiveness of our sins, new birth, and the Holy Spirit. We've been given all the down payments. We know he will make good in all his promises. Just trust in him 
and be at rest, be at peace. At the same time, though, we still want to add and say, don't let that peace and that rest in your soul translate into inaction. Fear is what makes people run away and, and flee the world. But faith plus hope in Christ's return should actually make us work harder in the fields to scatter more seed in the dark places that the light might shine. It's corny, but you know, the darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. It's true. And so it goes for Christ and his gospel. And so like the angel said to the disciples after Jesus ascended in Acts 1.11, why do you stand looking into the sky? Like he went up, he'll come back down. Until then, like, don't you have work to do? Move along here. Like we're not just standing looking up. Go take the gospel into the nations. It's the same for us. Get back to work. You know, we as the church body, we gather every Sunday morning. Why? You might say partly for, for retreat, for regrouping, for relief, for respite, for encouragement, for instruction, for consolation. All that's good. All that's necessary. But after it's over, it's time to get back out there. Like when the going gets tough, tough, you, you look up, you remember his coming. But then you, you press on because there's a lot that needs to be done. We are merely his servants. We're slaves turned into sons of the kingdom, sons of the resurrection. We're trophies of his grace for all the ages to come. And so let us then resolve to walk faithfully. And that that means sharing his gospel of grace with all in the darkness. And let us do so with peace, with joy, as he promised to us in the last verse of Matthew that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And when the end of the age comes, then he will be with us, this Emmanuel, face to face. And so we will work hard and pray, come Lord Jesus. And let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we don't need to be convinced much that the age is evil. That the world is dark, that the wicked are prospering, that injustice reigns in the land. We, we don't really need to be convinced of these things. We have eyes. We see them. We do need to be convinced from your word that, that Christ has come, that he's sovereign, that he is reigning. He has conquered the power of the devil, that he rose from the grave, that he is returning to make all things right. We confess all these things, Lord, but here we still breathe in the spirit of the age every day. We need these truths that we've behold, beholden from your word this morning to, to wash over us, to renew our minds, to remind us of what we do know and believe, what has been revealed to us by your spirit. Build our faith. We all, to a degree, suffer from a little faith, and it plagues us. We, we lose the peace and the joy that you have given to us in your resurrection. We also lose the power to walk, to run, to scatter seed. It's no time for hiding or fearing. There's much to do. Strengthen us in the inner man through your truth as it washes over us. Help us and convict us to grow in faith and to be more faithful to live as lights, as your witnesses, until the end of our lives or the end of the age, whichever comes first. Just make us to be found faithful. And all the while praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We do long for your return to make this world right. Until then, may we be found faithful. It is in his name we pray. Amen.